Many Americans have come to know Cynthia Nixon through a very uh, well-known television role, Miranda, on Sex and the City. But what most people probably don't realize, Cynthia, is about two decades before Sex and the City, you made your first Broadway appearance as, as a child, but you made your Broadway appearance. You've done a zillion different Broadway shows, off-Broadway, uh, touring companies, whatever, including on Broadway, The Women, The Last Night of Ballyhoo, Indiscretions, for which you got a Tony nomination, Angels in America, The Heidi Chronicles, Hurley Burley, and The Real Thing. Those two shows, by the way, simultaneously. Got to ask you how you were running back and forth between <laughs> theaters. Uh, also on television, uh, of course, you were known in the uh, the HBO movie Warm Springs is playing Eleanor Roosevelt. Got the Emmy and Golden Globe nominations. And, of course, the Emmy itself for Sex and the City. Welcome to Downstage Thank Center. you so much. Thank you. How did you get on stage at age 12 in the Philadelphia Story? Well, I was actually on stage at 14 in the Philadelphia Story, but oh. I had began, begun acting at 12. Uh-huh. Um, oh, you weren't lying about your age that early no, on? No, I was not. <laughs> I was not. Um, I, I, I didn't actually start on stage. I started in film and television. Hmm. Um, I, did a, I did some after-school specials. I, the very first thing I did was an after-school special that Butterfly McQueen was in. And uh, uh, then I did um, a, a film called Little Darlings with Tatum O'Neill and Christy McNichol and Matt Dillon and Armand DeSante. Um, and I did various things. I did a um, TV movie with Sarah Jessica Parker where we played, we had small roles, but we played the daughters of Vanessa Redgrave. And, uh, and then when I was 14, I got my first um, audition and chance to be in a play which was the Philadelphia story. And you played, you played Dinah Lord. I played, yes. Girl. But yes. how did you get that start? Was this something that you wanted to do? Was it something your parents thought saw talent and brought you forward? Or? Well, I, my mother had been an actress. She went to the Yale School of Drama, and she studied with Stella Adler and Uta Hagen. And um, she quit before I was born, but she did it for a long time. And um, she's very knowledgeable about theater, very interested in theater, always would take me to see stuff. You know, movies too, but but a lot of theater from a very early age. Um, so I guess she sort of indoctrinated me, you know, knowingly or unknowingly. I think it was just what she liked to do, and she wanted to share it with me. So it was kind of in our minds, I think, for a long time. And it was, um, you know, it was the '70s, and it was kind of a golden age of of child actors, particularly in New York. We had all kinds of, you know, we had Ali Sheedy and Justin Henry and. All these, you know, great kids. And you you would read about them, and they would live in New York, and they would have relatively normal lives. They weren't, you know, in Hollywood being driven around in limousines I mean, you were going stuff. to public school. I was going to public school, and it, it you know, it seemed doable. And But I didn't actually start. I mean, it sounds silly now in retrospect because I started when I was 11 or 12, but at that time we thought, well, we've waited till I'm a really kind of a mature age. Because, you know, you're surra- <laughs> you go to these auditions, and you're surrounded by people who have been acting since they were six weeks old. You know, but uh, we got to a point where I was actually old. You know, to me, 11 is the magic age in New York where you can um, go on the subways and the buses by yourself. So we actually, that was part of it because my mom worked and my dad worked and there was no one to take me to auditions. So And they would trust you as an 11-year-old to just go out to an audition and yeah. ride the subway? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I wonder if that would happen today. <laughs> you I, know, think so. I think really? so. I think so, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, it was the 70s. It was actually a lot less safe in New York than it is today. Mm. Well, now we we fast forward a couple decades to the present. You're you're just finishing up a run in the Rabbit Hole, yes. which is a very um, interesting show. For those who haven't seen it, it's about a husband and wife who have lost a four-year-old son in, in a traffic accident. He's been hit by a car and killed, and yeah. you play the grieving mother. Yes. 
Yes. Yeah. Would, I, would you like to elaborate on the story? Yeah, a bit? I mean, we're 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 still up for a few more weeks. We're up until April ninth is our final performance, uh-huh. and um, it's a play written by uh, David Lindsay, a bear. Um, I guess this is his fourth play that's seen in New York, and it's a real departure for him because he, I mean, with his first play, Funny Mirrors, he was, you know, launched, and everybody was very excited about this very original new voice, but his stuff has been far more whimsical and surreal and and wacky, I mm-hmm. guess you would say, and this is a real departure. This is, it, it said definitely has its very, very funny moments. It has some... Tyne Daly plays my my mother, and Mary Catherine Garrison plays my sister, and they're both a little larger than life. Um, but it's it really is um, a very spare play, a very quiet play, and uh, um, it really for for a play that's about such a an explosive topic. It's I think it's very. Um, very, I don't know the word exactly, but very spare, very close to the ground and quiet, and it just kind of builds on Well, it's interesting. It's, it's also very real. I mean, the people on stage, the characters, are, are real people facing a real problem in their life, the loss of a, of a child, which I can't imagine could be a, anything more difficult than a parent losing a child. Um, you're a parent yourself, so it must be very touching for you to, to have to portray a grieving mother. Yes, well, John Slattery, <clears throat> who plays my husband and I, we both have little boys of around uh-huh. this age. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. I mean, as you know, it's a, certainly a, a frightening thing to think about, but it does... You are more accessible to those emotions, having that little boy in your life and trying any way to imagine what it would But there like are a lot of good laughs. Tyne, Tyne Daly's character yes. is a very strong, opinionated yes. mother, and she pulls it off very well. Yeah, yeah. There are, for right, for a play, I mean, and it really does get you in the gut, I think, the play, but it, ha- it's, it, it ends on as hopeful a note, I think, as we can realistically find, and I also think it is very, very fun. You also need to have some laughter just to relieve the tension, I think. I, I think so, too. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Well, how did you come to choose this play? Because certainly you've got this, had this extensive stage and film and television career, but Sex and the City vaulted you to a new level of recognition, and while you did do The Women, a revival, during the run of Sex and the City, this was a new play, the first show you did after that run had completed. I imagine there's there was a lot of thought as to what should be the, the, the reintroduction of Cynthia Nixon not to really, Broadway. Not really, I have to say, not really. I mean, I think myself, and, and, and I talked to my friends who are actors about this, you know, we get asked, you know, you get to a certain level of recognition and fame and you get asked these questions about how you're planning your career and how you're, you know, and to me, being an actor, it's the same at whatever level you're at. I mean, you have an idea of something you'd maybe like to do, a direction you'd like to go in, but basically, you look at what's out there, you look at what's available to you, and you say, what's the best of this lot? And this play, when I read it, I thought... It wasn't. It wasn't that I was looking to do a, pl- a play or a serious play or a pl- you know, um, it was just this particular play really spoke to me. And then when, when Dan Sullivan, who who directed the play, when I when I heard that he had agreed to direct it, I thought that was really the linchpin because I'm a huge fan of his and I, I worked with him a, a little bit years ago and um, I just thought as wonderful as this play is in his hands, I know it'll be everything that it can be. But in the post-Sex in the City era for your, yourself and your career, you must get a lot of projects presented to you now that you wouldn't have gotten, say, 10 years ago. So how do you make the decision between Rabbit Hole and a zillion other projects that may have been pitched to you in the last couple of years? 
You picked the best one. I mean, you know. Was it just a gut thing that you read the script and said, this is really important? I mean, there aren't, frankly, there aren't that many wonderful new plays out there, Mm, you know. Um, And uh, this one, I mean, everybody that that read it on the page, and I think pretty much everybody that sees it now is, is, is really taken with it. And it and it is exciting, you know, having seen the playwrights work up to now. It is very exciting when something comes out of a writer that you think you know this writer. It's like, wow, there's a there are so many different voices within him. You spoke about the fact that you have a child the age of of the boy who is killed in the play, and John Slattery as well. And certainly, it's been much discussed that anybody who goes to see this show hears the audience responding so emotionally to a play which is not set out does not set out to be a tearjerker i'm curious as to what you hear because i can only assume that people have reached out to you with some of their own experiences and and what do you hear from yeah it people? is um, first let me just say it is an amazing i mean it, we get lots of laughs so they're there i mean we're all we're all used to that as actors gauging the laughs and oh the laughs are bigger tonight or oh we got one there tonight that we don't usually get or we didn't get one that we do usually get but it's so interesting to listen to the audience for this play because you listen to their listening you listen to you listen to their coughing when they're uncomfortable, and then you listen to mm. a moment that really, and then you can just hear a pin drop. You listen to the sniffling. Really? You listen to, there are so many little sounds that it's it's much more subtle, and, you know, there are, there are just many more moments of the audience going like, oh, you know. I'm really amazed to hear that, that you're in such a deep emotional role on stage that you're actually able to pay attention to the response from the audience. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think audiences would always be surprised uh, to find how much discussion there is about them backstage. Really? I mean, I think it's really... It's real. It's very a symbiotic relationship. And, And for some reason, particularly in this play, because... It can be so intense at times that you you literally you feel them breathing and then you feel them stop breathing. And you, we commented earlier that this play is a bit of a departure for David Lindsay Abair, the playwright whose whose prior three shows done in New York were all rather quirky, offbeat comedies. And he did the the script for Robots again, kind of. A, and is working on a musical with Betty Boop. So this, this Shrek, is, he's is, doing is a musical as, of Shrek. Exactly. So it, it's a departure. What you talked about in terms of listening to the audience, in, especially in previews, what what was David's response and was the play adjusted as as he understood more about working in a different style and, of course, what you all brought to it? No, I think that... I mean, I th- certainly think we made adjustments to the script and into the production um, in, in the previews, but n- they weren't really about him finding this new way of, of work. I mean, he, it just sort of came out of whole cloth. Um, I think the most of the changes that we made to the script were we just would would pare things down. We would we would strip away. We would say, we can we don't have to learn that. We don't have to have that piece of information right at the get go. We can learn that later. Or we talk about that here. We don't talk. We need to talk about it again here. We we, we don't. You know, never want the audience to to get ahead of you. In preparing for the role during the rehearsal process, even before rehearsal. Did you talk to any people who were, I don't know what word to use, experienced in the area of, of, of grief? I did. Grief counselors, that sort of people? I did. I um, I mean, I think 
one thing that the playwright did was he gave us a list of books that he had used for his own research, and we read those books, which were enormously helpful. Um, I read that you've been carrying around uh, Joan Joan Didion's Didion's book, book. Yeah, Your Magical Thinking. Yeah, which I just think, uh, I mean, I've always been a huge Joan Didion fan. My parents were both big fans of hers, and and I, I, it's an amazing book. And I think also the way she is and the way she observes her grief and the way she's determined not to fall into the cliches, you know, determined to try not to fall into the, the cliches of it, even as she's watching herself do it, I think that she has so much in common with the, with the character that I'm playing, Becca. I mean, I think... Whatever Joan Didion w- w- would have to say about about that experience would be useful, whoever you were playing. But I just feel like she and and Becca are really fellow travelers. I think they have a very similar point of view. Now you talk also about getting reaction during the show. You hear the audience rustling uncomfortably, whatever. How about afterwards? Do you get any feedback from people who have seen the show? Definitely, people who have been through this experience themselves. People who, yeah, I mean, we had um, we were you know we're collecting money for. Uh, Broadway Cares right now, and I had a bucket. I was collecting money the other day after the matinee, and everybody's talking to me about this and that as they're putting the money in the bucket. And then one one man just sort of walks by, and he just leans in very gently, and he says, "I'm in the club. Mm. I think you did a wonderful job." And you know, um, that's what I've heard that phrase a lot of times: the club that no one wants to be a member of. Um, and I've had a number of people, like I had a woman last week. There's a the thing that I say about um, my character has joined a book club in a neighboring town and no one knows about her. Mm-hmm. No one knows that she's lost her child. And so she says she doesn't get that look. She doesn't get that pitying look. And mm-hmm. a woman talked to me after the matinee. She was like, oh, you're right about the look. You're right about the look. And um, And I also had a couple from out of town talked to me they didn't know what it was about before they came but they said it was so true it made it easier to watch and they really latched onto the whole god argument in in the play you know what do you what do you do about a belief in a god how can you believe in a god if a god would do this to you and even more so to your child Let's come back now. We spoke about your early career and I think our listeners really should hear the story of being an actress who appeared simultaneously in two Broadway shows. The shows were Hurley Burley and The Real Thing. They were both directed by Mike Nichols. But I can't imagine that Mike Nichols had you in one show and woke up and just said, oh, let's have Cynthia do another show. Well, it was a little bit like that. Um, The first show that I was in, I auditioned and was cast to be in The Real Thing with Jeremy Irons and Glenn Close and Christine Baranski and Peter Gallagher. And we went out of town to Boston, and we were hit, and we came into New York, and we were a big hit, and it was all great. And then one day he gave me a script for Hurley Burley that David Rabe had written. And um, and he said um, he, he had the list of characters. Uh, he had just written a note, and he listed all the characters that were going to be in Hurley Burley so I would know who the other actors were for this other play that he wanted me to, to do. And he said, William Hurt is Eddie, and... Harvey Keitel is Phil, and Chris Walken is Mickey, and Jerry Stiller is Artie, and Sigourney Weaver is uh, Darlene, Judith Ivy is, oh, I can't remember her name, Bonnie, 
Cynthia Nixon is Donna, that was my part, and Yardley Smith is Debbie. And Yardley Smith was on The Simpsons. She was my understudy at The Real Thing, and he meant, <laughs> come and do this play, and then Yardley will do your pl- your part in The Real Thing. <laughs> so I thought, this is an amazing play, this is an amazing part, very different um, Let's do it. So we took that out of town to Chicago. And you're how old at this time? I'm 17. Okay. Um, We took it out of – I'm a senior in high school. Yes, I'm a senior in high school. We took it out of town to Chicago, and we were a hit, and we brought it into New York. But we were, you know, much more artsy than the real thing and long and a more difficult play, much darker play. So we didn't open on Broadway right away. We opened off-Broadway. We were a huge hit there. And all along – because when we were in Chicago, the play was – Four and a half hours, I think, wow. our first preview. So they kept cutting and cutting and cutting and, you know, making it more audience-friendly. And uh, and then we decided – then we moved it to Broadway. We were enough of a hit. We moved it to Broadway. And then Yardley Smith, who was still doing my role in The Real Thing, got a film in Texas. And she was going to leave. And um, we had always joked about this because the parts were – they weren't in. They were small parts. But they were very memorable, but um, the way they lined up, I could actually do both of them. And we had always joked about that. But based on the time, based on the at, time uh, within the show, when, right? When each the, when each of the characters were on stage and right, off stage. Right. So, um, and actually, there was a scene in Hurley Burley that my character was in that they cut that they just reinstated for the the production that they had just now. And had they not cut it, then I couldn't have done them Uh, both. That's not why they cut it, but... It just worked out. It just worked out. And so uh, Mike Nichols had directed Whoopi Goldberg's uh, Broadway show at that point that that made her famous and stuff. And uh, it was a one-woman show, and she didn't have a cast to go out with afterwards. So Mike would sometimes get the hurly-burly cast to, you know, get us all together. So you she adopted would, Whoopi. Right. We adopted <laughs> Whoopi so she would have a cast to go out with. And we were all out this one night. I hadn't seen Mike in a while, but I had heard that Yardley was leaving. And so I, I mentioned it to him, and I said, so Yardley's, Yardley's leaving. You know, now's our opportunity. I don't know if he said it or I said One of us said, you Jokingly. Know, or, or semi well, kind of not jokingly anymore. Uh, uh, uh. You know, like, look, this is happening. Both of these shows are in the same place now. They're both on Broadway. The actress who was doing them is gone. And how far apart were the two theaters? Two blocks. Convenient. One was at the Barrymore and one was at the then Plymouth, now the Schoenfeld. And so we thought, well, we'll try it. We'll do it right away. We won't announce it yet in case there's something that's not going to make it possible that we're not you know, we don't want to announce it and then be like, oh, right, we forgot. You can't actually do this because – and, um, yeah, and and I, I did – I would go and I would do the first act of Hurley Burley and then I would change my clothes and walk two blocks and do the second act of The Real Thing and wait and do my curtain call there and change and walk back the two blocks and do – I had a very elaborate makeup because she sort of turned into a, a – hooker street prostitute in the last act of Hurley Berlin I would do this elaborate hooker makeup and you know and then go on at around 11 o'clock that was the other thing that made it possible was Hurley Burley was such it was a, a long, long show yeah. yeah to do the final scene with William Hurt he would actually walk not run back and forth yeah. no very Funny leisurely yeah, I've heard of stagehands working two theaters at the yes, same time yes exactly but, but not uh, not, exactly. uh, not stars and, <laughs> and in the meantime doing your homework as well yes because you're still in school yeah I read somewhere that um 
by that by the it, point I was doing both of them, I was actually a freshman in college. And, and and how long a period did this go on for? I only did it for three months because I had done both plays for a long time at that point, and I was kind of sick of them. But also, perhaps more importantly, I had. Um, I had finals. I, was, I, was <laughs> I had my say first finals. set of finals, and I was worried about my geology exam because of geology, you know, science. So, if it hadn't been for time. geology, you may have continued in the room. I might have, but I had done each of them for like close to a year at that point. Ever any slip ups? Anything go wrong? That no, nope. nothing ever happened. No. Nope. Nope. <laughs> I read that shortly after you got one of your earliest stage roles, someone said to you, "Start studying the part of Juliet." Yes. And it was seven years later. That you got yes. the opportunity. Yes. Who who made the recommendation, and what were you doing by yourself to prepare for that? You ultimately played the part uh, for the New York Shakespeare Festival, right? Um, I when I got cast in my first play, which was the Philadelphia Story, Ellis Rabb, who was a great man of the theater and and a wonderful actor and director, and did a lot of uh, classical stuff. Um, he kept saying to me, you're 14, Juliet was 14, you must begin working on, Ju-, you know, Juliet. And he did, he had me over to his house a couple times, and we worked, you know, we worked on, the, worked on like, the very first scene, and then we would, he would sit there and tell me theater stories, which were wonderful. But, um, but I got it into my head, I was like, oh, I have to, and I learned it, and I, you know, worked on it, I just sort of read it over and over and memorized it, and would do monologues to myself and stuff, but... But it certainly seemed to have paid off because I, from the time I, I started acting when I was twelve, thirteen, you know, I auditioned for every single ingenue that they had at the public, and I came close to some of them, but I was never cast. But then, Juliet, the one, the the you know the the cherry on the ice cream sundae, mm-hmm. I got, and I think it was probably because I had been working on it all these years. And who was your Romeo? Uh, Peter McNichol. And Anne Mira was the nurse, and Milo O'Shea was the friar, and Courtney Vance was Mercutio. Not not a bad way to break no, into Shakespeare. Not bad. Not bad. Your next Broadway show after the the duopoly of Hurley Burley and Real Thing was the original production of the Heidi Chronicles. Yes. Well, the original Broadway production, Sarah Jessica actually did the part that I did off Broadway, and then she had to return to California. And it was going to move to Broadway, so I replaced her, and I did the last couple of weeks of the run off-Broadway and then moved it to Broadway, which is when I had worked with Dan Sullivan before, who directed Rabbit Hole, because he directed that. That play certainly was seen as a major statement for women's lives. I mean, perhaps a bad comparison, but it was for the stage what perhaps the Mary Tyler Moore show was on television. Um was was there an awareness of the importance of that play? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think people had been watching Wendy Wasserstein ever since she first appeared with Uncommon Women and Isn't It Romantic and um, a really original female voice talking about a female experience. Very funny, commercial, and yet political in her own, um, not quiet way exactly, but in her own uh, humorous way, I guess. But... Um, but Heidi seemed a whole, um, just this, you know, to try and take on kind of the, the the sweep of the women's movement, you know, from the 60s to the mm, just barely 90s, I guess. Um, and also not just the exciting parts of the women's movement, but the disappointing um, parts of the women's movement. Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, we knew, I mean, you know, it won the Pulitzer when we were doing it. I mean, it's amazing to, you know, be in a play and it wins the Pulitzer Prize. 
Incredible, incredible. And, and you know, it's just, it was it's such a wonderful play, and it was such a wonderful production. And you just know when you're in a play like that. What, you can just feel from the audiences the, the excitement of it and how much the experience has meant to them. And after that, you joined the cast during the run of Angels in America. I yes. had the opportunity to, to see you do that. Um, what was the experience of going into that show? It's very intimidating. I mean, we're talking about these shows because, because like Heidi Chronicles, I mean, these are kind of major social uh, events on the stage that you've been able to be a part of. So I'm I'm curious about Angels. I mean, it was just so – I mean, every every actor in New York was so – and everybody in New York was so excited about those plays. Um, And I had auditioned for them the first time around, but they had cast Marsha Gay Harden, but then she was leaving, and then I was just, you know – first in line saying please please me me because um, I did because Marsha left and Ron Lieben left but I got to do it with all the rest of the original cast for, for quite a right, while right Murray Abraham replaced Murray Abraham Ron replaced Lieben. Ron Lieben and I replaced Marsha Gay Harden but Stephen Spinella and Joe Mantello and Jeffrey Wright and Ellen McLaughlin and Kathy Chalfont were all were all still there so it was it was amazing it was amazing you were nominated for the Tony for Indiscretions Yes. How did, how did that show? How did you get into that show? I just auditioned for it. Um, uh, Sean Mathias directed it, and he's he's Welsh actually, but he's he's from England. He lives in England, and uh, so he didn't kind of know who anybody was. So he mm-hmm. just auditioned people, and he liked me, and he cast me, and um, it was it was amazing. It's it was Jude Law was making his Broadway debut in it. He played my boyfriend, and. Um, Eileen Atkins and Roger Reese and Kathleen Turner and amazing set, amazing costumes, amazing story. And Sean Mathias just has this uh, particular way of working that I that I just loved. I think his thing is all about really keeping it alive and keeping, you know, you as the actor, of course, know how the play's going to end. Mm-hmm. But to try and keep, as when you're performing it, to try and keep the possibilities alive that, well, maybe it would go this way tonight or it might, this might not happen. This isn't all written in stone. And even with the end of the play, he would encourage us to, to improvise and not, not verbally, but, uh, to improvise our, our movements and our feelings at the end, because it is a, it is a play. It's, it's a play about, um, incest and, you know, literal and figurative and, um, you know, where is where is the line drawn? And the line is would be drawn at different different lines and different nights. And it's a, it's a wild story. It's about this this young couple that Jude and I played, and he's like twenty one, and I'm like twenty seven, and we're madly in love, and we're getting married, and we're meeting his family for the first time, and he knows that I've been having this affair with this married man, but I'm you know I'm over, I'm I'm done with it. But then we meet his parents, and his his father turns out to be the man that I've been having the affair with, mm. and I don't tell him that and his father's trying to use that to blackmail me and he has this semi-incestuous relationship with his mother and then his aunt is in love with her brother-in-law I mean it's a whole it it is really about kind of a family gone bad and the things that people the, the, the things that people do to get what they want we're running through your Broadway credits, but we should also talk some about your off-Broadway work. And in particular, you were a founding member of the drama department, yes. an off-Broadway company. Yes. And wondering how that came about and, and what what that provided for you, being, being part of a company. Well, um, when I was 26, I think, 
I did a play. I got a, an offer of a play called The Country Club to do at the Dorset Theater Festival one summer in Doug Vermont. Carter Bean's play. Doug Carter Bean's play. And uh, I, I had heard of him because he had done the play called Advice from a Caterpillar that I hadn't seen but I'd heard about. And, and I read this play and I thought, well, this is a wonderful play and this is a very juicy part and it's just they were just offering it to me. Great, let's do it. And uh, I had a wonderful time. I loved him. I loved the play. I loved the part. And uh, people came up from New York to see it and loved it. And so we said, well, we'll just we'll really try and get a New York production of it going. And we really could. We went around to various theaters and we did readings of it. And we couldn't really get anybody to bite. And so we uh, so Doug, who is an extremely um, visionary person, I would say. He said, well, well, why don't we found our own theater company? And, you know, people in the theater are always saying things like that, but they don't usually mean them. They mean them in the moment that they're saying them, but it takes a lot of work and a lot of follow-through. And I said, sure, great, let's do it. Mm-hmm. And um, But he really meant it, and he really went to work, and we talked about who we would want to invite in, and what. And the first year or so we just gathered in his apartment and read old plays, old American plays, to try and give ourselves a a sense of not just the kind of artistic history of the American theater in the 20th century, but also the commercial, you know, plays that we don't remember anymore and nobody did them. But, you know, what was a huge hit in 1923? Let's read it. Well, ultimately, June Moon was a drama department production, an old little scene George S. Kaufman show. Yeah, but, I mean, we... We have done, we, we, you know, we do a lot of, of, of new plays, um, too, but we would also do, I mean, I think one of them, our very first production was Kingdom of Earth, which is a, a late, obscure, bizarre, but fascinating Tennessee Williams play, and we had Tennessee Williams on stage, I mean, an actor playing Tennessee Williams, reading the stage directions, and um, watching the action, and, um, but we also... We did uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which I think is one of the most amazing things we've ever did because uh, it, it was just so inventive and emotional and and incredible. But but also it was like this was in its time the most produced and popular play in America. Hmm. Let's look at that, you know. Now, when you talk about founding the drama uh, department. Um, it sounds almost like a Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland. <laughs> it does, my, doesn't my, it? my dad has a barn. Let's put on a show. I know. Uh, were you, as a group, naive going into this? Did you have a lot of problems or pitfalls along the way? Did you have yes, to become I, business people? Yes. I mean, we've certainly had a lot of... We, we've actually just started to come back because we've had a, a, a bunch of financial uh, uh-huh. trouble. But I, I have to say that I, you know, I'm always there you know, for a, a production and a benefit and a reading and whatever, but... But Doug and Mike Rosenberg, who is our managing director, they really they really bear the brunt of it of the of the fundraising and the day to day running. Now, when when did you start this? What, what year would that have been? Oh my gosh, I can't even remember. I don't remember. Oh, well, I was twenty six when we did when we did um, uh, the Country Club originally. I don't know, probably ninety six something oh of course I know when we found it because there our very first production I was pregnant with my daughter and so that was in ninety six so we probably found it in ninety five so and then sex in the city came a couple of years after that yeah during that six year period when you were shooting those episodes were you still doing theater yes I mean I did the, the one of the great things about sex in the city was it it 
it only shot at most half the year, sometimes only three months of the year. Uh-huh. So I would, oh, I would, I would do a play every every off season. Of course, I did, it was it was shooting here in New York, so it was very convenient. Also, I did a play of Doug's called "As Bees and Honey Drown." I did uh, "Hope Is the Thing with Feathers" by uh, Frank Pugliese. I did um, uh, "June Moon," that was just wonderful, wonderful production of ours. We keep talking about things you've done, and I have to ask you about something you're you're maybe embarking on. You're taking singing lessons. I am taking singing lessons. Are we looking to the, uh, the Cynthia Nixon musical? Well, one of these days? well, and what prompted you? You've had such success to suddenly say, "Now I want to work on my voice." Well, I get you know, I'm I'm a huge. I mean, there are certain kinds of music that I like. That, that are not Broadway show music, but but the bulk of what I listen to and what I like and what I love and get excited about is Broadway, Broadway music. And I, I, I love you know I I don't like every mu- you know I'm I'm one of those Sondheim you know William Finn John Michael Lachusa people, um, but I just get very excited about it. And my mother, who was an actress, has a beautiful soprano voice, and I always thought, well, my mother's a singer. I'm not really the singer. But at a certain point, I thought, you know, you, you only <laughs> live once. Let me try. And and also, frankly, I mean, I as the more I take the singing lessons, I just think it's so useful for everything, f- just in working on my voice, but also I just think that there is a way that singers breathe and access emotion that is helpful certainly to every performer but i think just in your life it actually gets you in touch with all kinds of stuff so but but i don't want to dodge the question yes i would love to do a musical sometime i did i did perform in public um for the first time recently i for the public for the public theater i did um i did sing right in public i did uh, dance 10 looks three from chorus line Hmm. which was a song that i used to perform in my living room for my parents when I was nine. So when they said, is there some, is there some, we said, we've heard you're taking singing lessons, is there some song from the public theater's past that you would like Mm -hmm. to perform? I knew exactly, Dance (laughs) 10 Looks 3, absolutely. You knew all the words already. I I didn't quite, I didn't quite, but. Well, of either current or previous uh, shows, musicals, are there any ones that you would have wanted to be in had you taken these singing lessons earlier? In in other words, what, what roles would you like to have played? Well, you know, there are the roles that I would like to play in an imaginary world where I can really, 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 really sing. Uh-huh. And then there are the, you know, the roles that I, I think are maybe feasible for me. Um, you know, I... Well, of, of the former, if you could really, really sing. Oh, if I could really, with, really, yeah, really yeah. sing? Oh, my God. I mean... You know, I do Gypsy, and I do Most Happy Fella, and I uh-huh. do, you know, I do them all. I do South Pacific, and I do, you know, forget all, it. All Golden Age musicals. No, no, I do Sunday in the Park with George, uh-huh. and I do, you know, I do all of them. Well, when you were growing up, were your parents playing this kind of music? Yes. My, my, not my dad. <laughs> not my no. dad. But your mother. My, but my mother, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Before we wrap up, I want to ask you, you've been very active on the cause of education mm-hmm. here in New York City. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little about the, the work you've done and and what your concerns are, and in particular, how it relates to arts and education. Well, it's a big topic, so I'll try and keep it brief. But I just think um, we just need to fund our schools better. I went to public school here. My, my daughter's going to public school. Um, when my son gets old enough, he will. Um, and I just think we have so many 
wonderful, dedicated, talented teachers working in the system, and we need to support them more. And, um, you know, not to get into too much detail, but, you know, 11 years ago, this, this lawsuit was brought against the state of New York saying that they're discriminating against the children of New York City by not funding. They're actually having their constitutional rights violated by the fact that they're so gravely underfunding education in this city. And the, the New York's highest court has, 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 has ruled this again and again and again. And the governor and the legislature, not the legislature in toto, the assembly is, is, is willing to stand up and rectify the situation. But the, um, the Senate, and particularly the Senate Majority Leader, are just digging their heels in. So we're trying to put as much pressure as possible. Recently, there are, there are four um, Republican state senators, two in Queens, one in Staten Island, uh, one in Brooklyn, um, Golden and Markey and uh, Padavan and Maltese, who are, you know, they're, they're, they're lining up behind the Senate Majority Leader and their party rather than lining up for their constituents and the kids in New York who they should be bringing this, these billions of dollars back. So we're doing everything, we're doing everything we can to, to and, and actually I have to say that Mayor Bloomberg has, has been surprising for, for a Republican. He's in a, he's in a funny position, but he has really spoken out against some of these guys and spoken out against the Senate, and he is really fighting to get this money for, for the New York City schools, too. Well, so. keep in mind, he was a Democrat who became a Republican. Yeah, so. but he's a Republican now, and it's, a, I think it's a, I think he's really stepping out on a limb, mm-hmm. and I think that there are certain issues that we have to, you know, which, whatever your party is, you have to look beyond your party and say, we need this money for the kids. The courts have ruled. Everyone agrees. Let's just do it already. Let's not, you know, I mean, we always say this, this lawsuit was brought 11, almost 12 years ago. There's an entire generation of kids that are not, that have not gotten the education because we can't figure it out already. Like, let's not waste any more time. Well, you're currently appearing in Rabbit Hole at the Biltmore Theater, the Manhattan Theater Club, uh, production, and uh, it wraps up April 9th. April 9th. On your yeah. birthday. My 40th birthday. Well, well happy yeah, birthday in advance. Uh, what, what, what might we look for Cynthia Nixon doing after Rabbit Hole wraps up? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the only thing I can tell you is Scott Elliott, who directed The Women That I Did uh, in 2001, he and I are uh, going to do The Prime of Miss Jean Brody at his theater, The New Group, uh, next season sometime. We haven't picked a time yet. Well, we hope to see you back on Broadway, and thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you. Thanks, Cynthia. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.